Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring messages from soldiers in the afterlife. My guest is Jonathan Beecher, who is the founder of White Crow Books, based in the United Kingdom. In that capacity, he has edited and republished many books detailing the work of some of the best spiritualist mediums of the 20th century. Also, using the pen name J.R. Archer, he is the author of the novel, largely based on factual accounts of parapsychological experiences, a Dog's View of Love, Life, and Death. He is also the editor of the newly published anthology, In Times of War, Messages of Wisdom from Soldiers in the Afterlife. Once again, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. So welcome, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Nice to meet you, Jeffrey. You've uh, had an interesting personal experience that led you to uh, found the uh, company White Crow Books and to uh, edit this new book in times of war. Yes, yes. Uh, shall I talk a bit about that? Shall I? Yeah, let's, let's start by getting into your own story. I think it's fascinating. As I recall it, it began when you took a nasty fall. You were sleepwalking. Yeah, I'm, t I'm told that's not possible. But all I, all I know is I went to bed one night with, with my some friends. We went to a dinner party. We'd been drinking a bit, but no more than another night. And the next thing I knew, I, I woke up and I was on the floor. And I'd uh, my wife woke me up. I was unconscious. And she found me on, uh, about five or six in the morning, whenever it was. And basically, I somehow walked across the room or something while I was sleepy and landed on my face. And I smashed my front teeth in my my jaw my uh, lip was severed i had to have 30 stitches and my jaw was broken on both sides and uh yeah i have no idea what it was about and i was lying on the floor but i had no so i was a mess you know but i had but but not in any pain whatsoever mm -hmm. which was kind of strange and uh, i didn't think too much of it at the time because i just thought it was something that happened every we said, oh, I was probably drunk or something the night before, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, but and I had to have six weeks off work because my jaws were wired up. I was running a record label at the time, an independent record label in London. And uh, so I was sitting at home for six weeks. And, and, and literally after a day or so, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to start writing, writing a journal, which is something I'd never thought about before. But it was the best thing I ever did because I ended up writing for the next few years, hundreds of thousands of words, just how I felt. Because uh, and and I and it was shortly afterwards I realised something had happened. In it. it took me a while to work it out. But something had happened. It was like I'd woken up and felt completely different to how I went when, when I went to bed. You know, like I'd had a software update or something like that. So you think it happened literally overnight? Because it occurred to me that the six weeks you spent in recovery, with I gather your jaw wired so you couldn't even talk might have also yeah. uh, been a very influential factor. It could, it could have been. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, 
for, for me, it was very disconcerting. It was, it was seriously disconcerting, you know, because I had, I had, uh, I was, you know, you wake up and you're feeling it over the next couple of weeks. I remember because I wrote some, I started writing things down. That's why, that's why, that's what was interesting. Because, you know, you know, you can remember stuff from years ago and you think, did that really happen? Or is it a false memory? But if you're writing things down, it's very interesting. And I was writing things down. Like the first day I was right, I was having, I was having odd dreams. And I, I don't remember ever having dreams. I know we always have dreams, but I never remember having dreams since I was a child. And I was having, uh, and I just felt different to the, to the day before, if you see what I mean. I mean, I, I guess it, I guess it, I guess it. It was definitely a before and after situation, although it did take a while. It took me quite a long time to work it out because at first, you know, because I just felt it was as if everything in my life beforehand was irrelevant, basically. Well, and and you, uh, you describe your life before this accident as basically uh, a, a materialist. I don't know if you were an atheist or not, but you weren't particularly drawn to spiritualism at all. I was an atheist, absolutely, I, I would think so. But I wasn't really, I mean, I grew up with my mother and my stepfather. My stepfather was an atheist. My mother was, you know, secular. There was no religion in the house, no Bible, nothing like that. We never went to church or anything like that. I, I was christened, but I, but I wouldn't have my children christened, for instance. My son, I wouldn't have him because I thought it was mumbo-jumbo. And I had, but I wasn't anti. It wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. And I certainly had, I certainly had no... Uh, knowledge of people who have spiritually transformative experiences or near-death experiences or spiritists or mediums or, or anything to do with psychic. I had, I had no, uh, I had no interest and no knowledge of any of it. So no, that's true. But, Which is uh, why it's disconcerting. <laughs> well, uh, but more things began to happen. You began receiving uh, messages from a spiritualist medium. First of all, I, I started feeling very different. Like, I had suddenly I had no fear of death. Not that I ever really thought about death. I, mean, I was I was almost forty four years old, so I didn't really think about it too much. I was out. I was, I was in the music business. I was flying around the world. I had a couple of children with two two marriages. You know, <laughs> living the life, traveling in, in and out of America and Australia and all this sort of thing, having you know, having fun and ups and downs like everybody. But I wasn't. I definitely wasn't in any. Didn't really think about it. But all of a sudden, I had this different uh, different feeling, as if I was. It was very strange, as if you know, as if this wasn't home, kind of thing, as if I was somehow connected to something greater. And you know, I had I had this physical, physically, I had a, I had this high pitched whistle in my head, which I still have to this day. Which I'm sure if I went to a doctor, they'd say it was tinnitus or something. And I could hear my heart beating. And there were some weird things like physically like that. But the way I felt was, uh, and suddenly I felt I was sort of plugged into some, you know, I mean, a lot of friends of mine thought I might. They didn't think I'd gone mad. But they couldn't really understand what happened because one day I'm like this, you know, I used to hunt, you know, go shooting uh, pheasants and game and things. And, uh, you know, and, and we always did it in the winter. And, sure, and, and about, this happened in October. So by about December, I was healed up and my pal called me and said, you know, we've got some shooting days booked in January. And I said to him, oh, I can't go shooting. And he said, why not? I said, well, I, I, I can't shoot an animal. He said, well, why not? You've been shooting, kill it. He's been killing him for years. And I said, I just, I don't know why not. I just can't do that anymore. And so he didn't understand. That's a major change. Yeah, I couldn't, and, and I, but I couldn't understand why. And within a couple of years, I couldn't eat meat anymore. I just couldn't, it just, the idea of it repulsed me, even though I, I've got two dogs and I feed them meat. But I, I, haven't eaten, I haven't eaten meat or anything like that for way back then, you know. 
I started doing voluntary work. I, I never thought, I didn't know anybody that did voluntary work. <laughs> and all this kind of thing. And uh, I, I was just, at, and, and my business, the most important thing for me was the business that I was in, that I'd been, I'd co-founded a couple of record companies. I'd been in it for nearly 30 years. I had just no interest in it. It was, it was almost if like it was a bit of a game. It wasn't really interesting. And I was, and, uh, and then what happened was, I think the thing you're referring to, so I was, I was writing this, so I spun up, but I was writing all the time. I was writing, and I was experiencing precognitive dreams. I didn't even know what a precognitive dream was, and uh, and all this sort of odd things happening like that. And then, and then, about two years into, two years, eighteen months later, maybe I was writing. I was writing this journal one night. I started writing and writing and writing, and uh, about how I was feeling. And on this particular night, I've now become very interested in death. Not in any morbid sense. It was just. I didn't think death, to me now, in my newfound, you know, post, post headbanging state, in my newfound, it was as if death was, didn't, there was no, there was no such thing as death, but obviously death of the body, but it was nothing. So obviously it wasn't anything negative. So I was writing one night about, I always had a lot of coincidences back then, beforehand even, and, I, and but I now call them synchronicities, I guess, but back then, and on this particular night, I was writing a blog about how I had, how I'd made decisions in life, and people had died as a result. And I wasn't, it wasn't sort of a guilt thing. I was just observing how, why, why that was. So, for instance, when I was 21, I, I, had to, I was managing a clothes store, and I had to hire a guy, and, then he, and he, he didn't work out, and I had to fire him. And he went home and hung himself, and which, which was very traumatic, as you can imagine. And, his, and it turns out his father came to see me, the next day, I was 21 years old, and he told me he was uh, told me he was uh, he was a schizophrenic. He'd been in hospital for six months, and it, you know, he made me feel better about it. But it was a strange thing. And then, and then what happened was, I had this in 1988. I had this friend of mine who died in my house. So on this particular night, I was writing about uh, whether I, I'd have taken him to hospital or made a decision. It made a different decision whether whether he could have uh, whether I could have done anything about that. He, he basically, he was, he split up with his girlfriend. He came to stay with me. He'd been out drinking one night. The bar, the bar owner brought him home, brought him back to my house, to my house, delivered him at 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, delivered him drunk, Brian, his name was. And, uh, so I put him on the sofa because he wouldn't go to bed and put a cover on him. And then, uh, I was about 31 at the time. He was 33. And, uh, I was there with a girlfriend of mine. And, and the following day, on the following morning, he, he was laying on the floor and he'd been sick and, and he was moaning, but he wouldn't, and I was trying to get him to go to bed, but he wouldn't go to bed. He just wanted to lay as if he was wanting to sleep it off, if you like. I thought he just had a terrible hangover. He'd been sick and everything. So I went, and so I left him there and went to see my parents. So when I came home with my girlfriend, he was dead. So that was in 1988. And then another thing happened, like two months, three months, two or three months after that, we used to fly around the world a lot, and we used to have freight companies always offering us tickets for flights and things. And I, and I was feeling after my friend died, it was a, I had to, you know, it was a, it was a terrible time because it was uh, I had to tell his parents and all this kind of thing. And uh, I uh, anyway, a couple of months later, one of these freight companies offered me some tickets to go to New York. And I was in the company. We didn't take the tickets because we never wanted to favour the companies. But this time, I thought I'll take them. So I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll have those two tickets for New York. In December, this was in September, the same month. So my friend died a month before, in '88. Anyway, about a month or so before the flight, I decided I didn't want to go. I don't know why. 
I'd, be, I'd flown, I don't know how many times I've been on planes, but many, many times. And it was the only time I decided I didn't want to, didn't have tickets for a flight, I didn't go, apart from I remember missing a flight in America once. And anyway, that plane was the Lockerbie flight where everybody got killed. The, the, the uh, Pan Am flight that got blown up. So going back to 18 months after I've had my bang on the head, I'm writing one night, I'm writing about this and going, does this happen to, does this happen to people normally? You know, I've had there's four people I can think of who, you know, you made a decision, didn't go on a plane, got fired a guard, didn't take the guard to hospital and they died. So so I was asking my, I was asking the question, I suppose writing, to my friend, saying to my friend Brian, could I have done anything? You know, not, as I say, I'm the guilt feeling, it was an observation. Anyway, three days later, my sister called me at midnight. She was a very normal kind of girl, and I was a normal kind of guy. And she was very, uh, and she was very nervous about calling me. It was very late at night, insisting that I should talk to a friend of hers, a school friend of hers, wife, who she'd been talking to, who called her because they were desperate to talk to me. The wife was desperate to talk to me. And it turned out the wife, had, I called this woman, and it turned out the wife had been to see a medium because her grandfather had died. And halfway through the sitting, she said there was a, someone came through for John. Her husband was called John, mine called John, common name, and his name was Brian. And this John was connected to her. She'd never heard of anyone called Brian, so she, so she went home and, and uh, told her husband you know, about all this message. She didn't understand it. And he said, oh, well, my friend Nikki, my sister, her brother, John, me, had a friend called Brian who died in his house. So she's then so she that's why she wanted to talk to me. So I called her. She talked to me, and she said to me, she said to me, very much. She's never met Brian. He's like a drop-in kind of guy. But she'd never met Brian, and she said, and I've never met this woman. And she's telling me, and she's been to see a medium. So she wasn't a medium. And she she said to me, oh, he, he, your friend has a message for you. He said that uh, you've been thinking about him in the last few days, which is true. I've been writing about him, something I hadn't done for years. But he died in this is two thousand two. He died in eighty eight. And he says that whatever you think, it's his time to go. You couldn't have done anything about it, which throws up philosophical <laughs> connotations to this day about the time to go. Yeah. And then she described how, what he did for a living, that he was a jeweler, he was tall with blonde hair, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this went on and on and on. And that kind of, if you like, piqued my interest that something was going on. And then I started reading the literature. And then I started realizing this bang on the head I'd had. There was a lot of people who had these kind of experiences. And then I ended up going to see a medium and so on and so forth. And, and uh, I then became, went on a different path. I'm presuming th it was this experience uh, and others like it that led you to become the founder of White Crow Books. What happened with that was I didn't plan. I was quite happy being the founder of a record company. And it was much more profitable, by the way. So, uh, so, I, so I was very happy doing that. But this whole, you know, I then... Uh, I, then started going I then visited a medium a year later because I couldn't understand I could I was trying to debunk what had happened I didn't believe in any of this stuff so but I couldn't understand how I could have a conversation with a woman that a dead friend of mine could come through the sitting three days after I'd been writing about him and answer a question that I asked and various other things so I couldn't understand that so then I went and saw a, a medium a year later and had hugely evidential reading lots of them there'd been many of those books with those what happened was and then after that, I lost interest in all my job and business. So, I, and I, so I, when the time came, I just left. But then I had to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was now embroiled in this what's the nature of reality kind of thing. So I made a documentary with, uh, I decided to, I had to do something. You know, I, I wasn't independently wealthy. I wanted to do something. And I was reading all these books. And I decided to make a documentary. And I met Gary Schwartz. You know Gary Schwartz, University of Arizona. 
And we made a documentary about a pre-cognitive guy from Christopher Robinson. That was interesting. We made it in Arizona. And, uh, and then after that, I was reading all these books and reading all this life after death literature. And meanwhile, I was, I, I'd, left my, I'd left my business and I, they put me on gardening leave. They didn't want me to go. So I went off to America and I went to remote viewing conference and I met Ingo Swan and Russell Tarr was there and Paul Smith and all those guys. I went on the Monroe Institute gateway for a week. I went to a physical seance in White Plains in New York. I was doing all this stuff and uh, reading all this stuff. And eventually I started, and eventually I thought to myself, I quite like all these old books, these old books that were out of print and everything. And I thought, and I, I started releasing them. And then, you know, and it went from there, really. And that's why here I am. I well, let's uh, talk about your book in times of war. It, it really attracted my attention because long ago when I was a college student, I had a mentor, Arthur M. Young. He was actually the man who invented the Bell helicopter. And after inventing the helicopter, he took a, a big interest, as you have done, in, in the paranormal and traveled to England. This would have been back in the 1940s. He met Lord Dowding personally, uh, about whom you've written. So uh, he told me these stories of Lord Dowding, and then I saw uh, for the first time, really, you know, since then, in, in your book. So why don't we start there and, and talk about Dowding? He's, at, at the time, during the Second World War, one of the most prominent men in England. Born in the 1880s, I think. I'm not an expert on Dowding. I mean, how I got to know about him was he married a woman called Muriel Dowding after his first wife died. And she was a vegetarian and anti-vivisectionist and all this kind of thing, quite a well-known woman in England. And years later, her, they had a, she had a son, and Lord Dad, Dowding brought him up kind of thing. His name's David Whiting. He got in touch with me to say that his stepfather's books had been out of print for years, and someone said I should, he should talk to me. And so I, so I started reading these books. And, but, and basically, Dowding was, you know, in, the, in World War II, he was... He was quite old, I guess. He, I guess he would have been about 45 or 50 or something like that. And he was the air commander, or the, the command, I'll probably get picked up on this for his exact job title, but in the Battle of Britain. So while the Battle of Britain was going on, between him, he was probably one of the most famous people in the UK, aside from Winston Churchill. And, uh, but he, uh, he apparently, his wife had died sometime before, and, and into Clarissa, I think, and he, and he went to a seance basically, and, and I think that's where he met his second wife, and then he started having, he had lots of evidential kind of sittings, he started reading a lot of the books that I found I was reading later on as well, and then he set up a rescue circle where he was kind of helping people who had died, and ostensibly didn't know they died, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure, and I'm sure history, you know, in the history books, he's probably not very well known for that, because I'm sure people probably thought he could have gone off the rails, but I don't think he'd gone off the rails at all, he just he spent his whole life dedicating to you know, finding out the truth, the nature of who we are, and uh, and yeah, so he's a, he, he's, in his, he, so he's he's no slouch, if you know what I mean. He was a fascinating character. I understand his title was something like Air Marshal. He was in charge of the Royal Air Force. That's right. That's right. I mean, when they made the film, they made a film in I think it was '69 called The Battle of Britain. Laurence Olivier played him, you know, and Laurence Olivier was the big theatrical actor in the UK, and he was, and what was interesting about his books, I thought, was that he, you know, basically he's talking about the experiences he had, the, and, you know, he's, he's got this group of, you know, he's got this rescue circle, he's sitting in these mediums, and there's all these dead airmen 
who were his part of his crew, sort of following him around and trying to and trying to <laughs> trying to wake up other airmen and people who've died and not knowing they've died. And so, and so it's it's quite, it's fascinating if you uh, and, and of course for me. Having had some, having had a lot of experiences by now, and had this also had this sort of head trauma and feeling very differently, had some kind of spiritually transformative experience, and and then having, I could fill a book with really interesting stuff of, from very evidential stuff from that I had from reading. I could, if you like, buy into doubting because I had the same experiences, and for me, it wasn't about sort of any weird belief system. It was just you know, if someone, if you know, that, if, if, if you get all this information. From people who profess to die. I mean, I don't know when, when you get very specific, detailed information that other people could not possibly know, which I've had lots of. I'm sure lots of other people have, and you know that it can't be the, the person sitting in front of you. Then you have to you, know, you have to conclude that it's well, there's something going on. I will say, you know, if my dead grandfather got in touch with me, which he did, and told me his name, and I didn't even know his name, I don't know if it's my dead grandfather. It could be a pink frog pressing a button. You know, we could all be simulations. What I do know is. It wasn't the person in the room, so therefore my materialist, atheist worldview was wrong, is wrong, was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so doubting was kind of similar kind of, uh, so I empathised with him really. So I like, so, and then what happened was a few, uh, like end of last year, I was listening to, I think, I think Donald Trump had just pronounced they were going to leave the mid-range nuclear weapons treaty and he was, you know, and, you know, and, and, and then, Putin at the same time made some speech, you know, very, very religious almost speech, where he said, you know, if we get attacked with nuclear weapons, you know, we'll 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 become martyrs in heaven, and and our enemies won't have time to repent. I'm thinking, oh my god, and, uh, and I was reading about all this stuff, and I was thinking a lot of people, and, and I was thinking about Dowding's work and other books that I've put out, where people who've been at war and they've died, and how they how it affected them after they. What, after they died and what, what state they found them in and I just started writing and putting them together and, because I thought that was fascinating. Now you mentioned that Dowding formed a rescue circle. Can you define what a rescue circle is? Yes, well the explanation for a rescue circle is that many people die and, they were, and after they've died they don't realize they're dead and they might be in a very negative state so the theory is, if it is, a th well, it's not even a theory. Is it? The, the, the idea is that they're, uh, they're, they're at a very low vibration, that we're at a vibration. When we die, we go to a higher vibration. But they're a very low vibration, therefore people, therefore people who would be helping them on the other side, if that's the best way to say it, can't reach them. And therefore they're e more easily reached by people here. So you get these groups that have been going on for years, certainly in the UK and all over the world, who've been, who sit for years, in service, if you like, uh, helping people, you know, so the medium will, the medium will communicate and they'll speak to let them know that they've come, they let them know they've passed over and help them move on. And these groups are all over the country even now. I, I've met a few of them over the years and they, they don't charge, there's no money changes hands, they do it for years and Dowding set up one of those and where they were in the idea to help people. In other words, Dowding uh, worked with a medium. Uh, yes. He would be speaking to the spirits of uh, deceased soldiers uh, by talking to the medium, and the soldiers would speak back to him through the medium. Yeah, the medium was in trance, and he would be explaining to them that they, you know, that they weren't in Germany. Let's say they were in Wimbledon, which is where he was sitting, and he would, you know, and he'd help them move on. People bring them in, and uh, it's, it's a well-known tradition, I believe, you know, and and, and so yeah.
yeah, that's what he would do. So in, in Dowding's writings, there are many accounts then of deceased soldiers who, who would come. They didn't even know they were dead, uh, but they would yeah. often provide many details of the battles they had been in. They would provide details. He would try and explain to them how, what was it? What I found interesting was they're, they're talking about, they're, they're, quite, they're quite often talking about their state of mind before they died and then the state of mind after they died and how they found themselves and what it, and, and, and what their what they could see and what they could feel and what they could hear and and how their how their how their beliefs really affected their beliefs that when they were alive affected their environment when they're dead after they died sort of thing which is which is interesting which is what i guess religion has been telling for thousands of years but but uh so yeah so he would converse with them and then he would have this bunch of bunch of people on the other side if you like who would be bringing these people in a bit like, you know, Carl Whitman, yeah. 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 It was interesting because he was bringing people in in the 1930s or, nine, or in the early 19, yeah. He, Wickland was a very prominent psychiatrist. Yes, yeah. Well, you probably know more about him than I do, but uh, but uh, he, he was interesting because if you think we had, I, I thought what was interesting about his book, 30 Years of Among the Dead, he, his wife was a medium and that's how he became... That's how he. That's how he became to experience it, if you like. And he had people. I thought it was interesting that uh, we just had the anniversary of the Titanic, and William Stead, who was the, who was a prominent journalist, who died on the Titanic. But uh, I thought he was interesting because he was a he, he. He had some abilities, psychic abilities, automatic writing, that kind of thing. And twenty years before. 20, I thought it was interesting that 20 years before the Titanic in 1892, Stead wrote a book, a novel, about a ship called the Majestic was sunk, and the captain on that ship in his book was, I think it was Edward J. Smith, or whatever his name was, and it was the exact same name, including the initial of the, Titan, of the Titanic captain 20 years later. So you can imagine, can you, I mean, I was thinking about that, can you imagine you've got Stead, William Stead, who is the journalist, who writes a book, Maybe it was inspired, and he names the captain on this ship that hits an iceberg called the Majestic, owned by the White Star Line. And then 20 years later, he steps onto the onto Titanic, and you can imagine that they probably the captain probably came and said, "Oh, my, I'm your captain. My name's Edward J. Smith, or it's the same name." He's th he had to thinking, "My God, I wrote, I wrote about this 20 years ago. Revolution. I mean, that must have been kind of." But but he came, but he came through while he after he died, supposedly. To Wickland and, and, and brought people to him who were in trouble. He was out the same as Dowding was doing mm -hmm. 30, 40 years later. As I understand it, uh, one of the you know, passengers that came through was uh, Jacob Astor. Well, suppose, yes, because Wickland wrote in his book, he, people came through and, he, uh, and he, he abbreviated their names because their families were still alive, but yeah, J.J.A., I think, which you call him, or John J.A. The only John J.A. was John Jacob Astor, who was, uh, who was on the Titanic. And it's interesting, if you read, if you read, in, well, it, I, I use it in my book, if you read when J., John Jacob A. comes through, if you like, to Wickland, if you, if you read what he says, and then you go and look up what he was like, it's very, you know, this, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And that, that's another example. I mean, he, he came through to Wickland in in 1916 but he died in 1912 but he's still cold wet and not really knowing where he was so this idea that so that, so what it tells to me is if you were 
it's uh, it's probably quite useful to have an idea about what might happen when you die, even if even if nothing happens. There's nothing to lose by just having an idea because Wick, he, he was a good example of someone who who uh, was in this kind of hellish state apparently, as a lot of them are, because he spent four years and was st- four years as we measure time, and not and was not really didn't really know where he was or what he was doing, mm-hmm. and so uh, yeah. Kind of the same as what Dowding was saying when people were coming through to him. You know, you get soldiers coming through, and they're all they get, they get very philosophical because they're talking about how they how they felt before, how they felt afterwards. That should, you know, there was one guy. There was one guy that came through to Dowding, and he was he was a Norwegian. He said that he was he lived he lived in England, I think. He spoke he spoke good English, and he was a shopkeeper, and the Germans and killed him. And he said that, uh, and he said he couldn't forgive the Germans. He said he couldn't forgive, he could never forgive the Germans. He's dead, bear in mind. He said he could never forgive the Germans. But at the same time, he knew that by not forgiving the Germans, he couldn't move on. He was stuck in this kind of frequency vibration, whatever you want to call it. And uh, so they say a lot of things like that, which I find quite interesting. Mm-hmm. You, you point out in your book that uh, these stories go back actually to the time of Plato. Yes, well, there was the story of Air, I guess, wasn't it? I think it's Ur or Air, where he was, he was, uh, that was one of the early ones that was recorded, Plato recorded in a conversation with, with Socrates, talking, who, who basically had what we might call a, I guess you call it a near-death experience. They describe how he goes off to another place, how they have judges, and how they uh, and how and how he's told that he's not being judged now, but he has to go back to go back to earth, if you like, or to his life to to uh, report and let them people know that there are consequences and all this kind of thing. And then there was the and then there was another one guy in the in the, uh, in the Seven Years' War in seventeen hundreds, seventeen sixty two, and he was interesting because he he clearly had a he clearly was very sick and had a sort of near death experience nearly died and while he was in a stupor he met a he met a doctor who he knew on the boat and it turned out the doctor had already died so that was for him that was a good evidence because otherwise how could he have known that the doctor had already died so uh, yeah there's plenty of these reports there's plenty of, I mean, there seem to be many from 1762 where where was that one reported in America because I think I think well, he, he was in I think he was stationed in America on a, on a boat and he talked about he talked about that the British had uh, he talked about he was an American I think and he talked about that the British had settled their affairs with Spain and France but they would be coming after us you mm-hmm. the Americans next which obviously did happen a few years later so uh, yeah and, and the interesting whether you go back obviously they're in a different vernacular but whether you go back to the Vietnam War with Bill Vanden Bush I mentioned him or or Lord Dowding, or the, the the situation, the language is very different, but the situation people find themselves and what they say about about the consequences, if you like, for what you believe in, and uh, how you find your environment after, seem to be very similar. Well, one of the common themes uh, that you report is that. Uh, soldiers in particular, after they die, they're often uh, shrouded in a kind of darkness, and this darkness is, a, a, in effect, a projection of their own uh, thought forms. It does, seem to, it does seem to be the way. It does seem to be the way. It seems to be, if, you know, the more, if they're, if, they're in a more, if they're in a more negative place, let's say, not so much for what they've done, it's fair. I mean, who knows, but it, it, for what they say is, 
if they've been in negative states, whatever they believe. For instance, if they believe nothing happens when they die, they spend a lot of time in a state of no-thingness. They, sp they spend a lot of time experiencing nothing, blackness, whatever you want to call it. And so, uh, so and uh, if they if they believe they're going to be, so, yeah. So there are so so consequently, whatever we quite often whatever they whatever they think they're going to experience. They experience, not, which is not all good, by the way, not, but not all bad either. So, yeah, oh. and they're in a confused state. And, uh, but at the same time, at the same time, you, there are you know, a lot of them report who were quite normal guys, mostly guys, obviously, in, in, in that war, who, who had just been killed. They weren't particularly religious, but they may have been, but they kind of had a half an idea. They were obviously wondering if they were going to survive, and they weren't that, they weren't that surprised when they did survive. But what is interesting is how they find that how they how they how they struggle to control there where they are. So, for instance, one of them, the Polish guy, he talks about he talks about that he's with his he's with people that he likes now. He's with people, and he and he knows he should go back to Poland if you like project himself back to Poland and help people there who died. But he's worried that if he projects him back to po himself back to Poland, he won't be able to find get back to where he is now. So it's almost they're in like they're in a. That they're in a kind of well, I guess what they say they're in the astral plane, if you whatever you want to call it, where where whatever you think manifests. Another fascinating case you report on is uh, involves President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his personal secretary. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, that was a that was a, a famous, well, well-known back then Irish medium called Geraldine Cummings, and she met, I think she'd met a guy called David Gray. Who was the? Uh, I guess he'd be the American was he the ambassador in the UK or something like. That. And uh, they were sitting one day, and, a, and, a, and an entity, a woman, came through, who identified herself as Marguerite de Hand, who was, who was Roosevelt's PA, who died, and she was trying to get through to David Gray to tell him that the president was going to be coming over any day now, and uh, which of course he did a couple of days a couple of days later. And then an entity comes through who sort of identifies himself as Roosevelt, who, who talks about, you know, the food that he ate. And he talks about how his, at his funeral that no one could see him, but his dogs had recognized him. His dog Scotty, I think, it was recognized him and rolled over and kind of thing. So it was quite compelling. A lot of these stories are very, a lot of these stories are very compelling. I mean, the, the medium, Geraldine Cummings, you know, the woman, the woman coming through, who was Roosevelt's secretary, talked about her replacement. There was someone called Bo Botenga or something. You know, lots of interesting, uh, lots of interesting things that she probably wouldn't have known. As I say, for me, the reason why I can be uh, open to these things is because I've had so much of my own stuff come through. That, you know, so I know it happens. You know, I don't know how it happens. I don't know who's communicating, but it happens. Well, it seems as if when you go through all these reports, what you get is a uh, quite a smattering of uh, evidential material. Inf information that comes through that the medium certainly wouldn't have known and, and it checks out and it's accurate but more than that you get descriptions of what the afterlife is like for these people and uh, given that it includes some evidential material I, I would think those descriptions uh, are worth uh, careful study. There was the guy uh, Randall, Edward Randall who was the lawyer from American Lawyer and I think the interesting thing about some of those early reports, and I think they still exist today, but those early reports is it seems like that back then, because there were probably less distractions and there were, 
So they were able to, so they had, they, you know, they, like Randall, for instance, met a lady called Emily French, who was a direct voice medium, which is a very unusual, rare, apparently, gift, yeah. if that's the right word, where she would sit in a dark, in a dark and darker the better, but you know, not, not a pitch black room, a darkened room, and voices would manifest in the room that didn't come from her. And so Randall was a sort of trial lawyer, apparently, and he... And, and he heard about this woman. She was quite an elderly lady. And so, but he, he, but he wanted to make sure it wasn't all fraudulent because obviously a lot of those things leave themselves. So he invited her to his house where he had a circle. They all seemed to have a circle back then. And, this, and, uh, and they sat, they did 700 sittings. You know, she never took any money. And of course, you know, once you've got over the initial, oh, Uncle Bob's here. He died five years ago. Hi, Uncle Bob. I love you. You love me, that kind of thing. Then they start talking about, how they find themselves, and, and the interesting thing is, they all find themselves in different environments. I think that's interesting. But you know, I can picture it that you and I, Jeffrey, were driving down the road, and we're in a car crash, and we both get killed immediately. But then, if we but then if we wake up, or we're not in our body, you and I might be in very different places. You might be in somewhere way more advanced than me, or I might be somewhere. And it's uh, that idea that, that that idea that we. But when we when we drop our bodies, for want of as the Indians say, when we drop our bodies, we we settle at a sort of frequency, if that's the right word, or or a light, or a state of light, wherever we might be. So yeah, so they, yeah. But I think these, but I think people have been talking about this stuff for thousands of years, haven't they? I mean, it's not it's not anything new. But I think I think what is happening now is, you know, with you know, with people having near death experiences, then you've got all these things like such as remote viewing and, you know, serious people. It's not just, they're not, you know, they're doing all sorts of experience and all sorts of experiments with telepathy and all these kind of things that, that a materialist would say can't exist. But there's just, there's too much evidence for that it can't exist. I mean, if I take my own personal experiences, you know, I was not a believer in anything and I'm not a big fan of belief in anything. I'm a fan of experience. And, of course, you know, we can get, so, and if you get, if you get, uh, you know, we we live by experiences. We can be fooled, but uh, but, but but not all the time. So uh, so yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. Well, Jonathan Beecher, thank you so much for uh, sharing these stories with me and and the work that you're doing. I certainly want to encourage our viewers to take a look at uh, your book in time of war. Uh, messages of wisdom from soldiers in the afterlife and uh, to check out the catalog of white crow books it's to me it's an amazing catalog over a hundred titles uh, now of uh, some of the real classics in uh, spiritualist and mystical literature that's kind of you to say so Jeffrey and, and uh, you know, thanks for having thanks for having me on I appreciate it I watch a lot of your shows thank, thank you well thank you for being with me it's been a pleasure Thank you.